Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade. A lot of scholars consider this writing during this period about this trial as to be some of her best and most colorful literary writing during that period of her life. We'll look at a project documenting the history of Puerto Ricans in Central Florida. The question is, why do people come to a place? How do they settle there? How do they make a cultural home? And that's a story that really, really needed to be told. Remembering a local dairy on the Treasure Coast, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you lie in it? Oh, shack a lack 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 Hurston's anthropological work in Florida, Haiti, and New Orleans informed both her books of nonfiction and her novels, as well as her theatrical works, articles, and essays. Since her death in 1960, the work of Zora Neale Hurston has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity. Several biographies of Hurston have been published, but until now, the later part of her life has been largely overlooked. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by the University Press of Florida. The book begins with an overview of Hurston's career as a celebrity of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s. Well, as a matter of fact, from about 1925 and 1945, she was the most widely acclaimed black writer since Phyllis Wheatley, the poet. Um, When she appeared on the cover of Saturday Review of Literature in 1943 after winning the Ennis Field Wolf Book Award for Dust Tracks. It was actually the first time that a black author had been honored in such a way. Um, by that time, she'd published two books on folklore, three novels, one autobiography, and she was awaiting the publication of her fourth novel, Seraph on the Swanee. And at that time was when this horrible um, morals charges uh, really took her down. In 1948, while Zora Neale Hurston was living in Harlem, she was shocked when a policeman knocked on her door and arrested her for child molestation. The charges were false and Hurston's innocence proven, but the experience had a profound effect on her life and career. Virginia Lynn Moylan. She had lived with a woman named Mamie Allen in 1947 in Harlem. She had rented a room from this woman. And although she wasn't there very often, she uh, was in Upper State New York, and she had gone to uh, Honduras for a time. And fortunately, this showed on her passport, and it's what ultimately saved her from being falsely convicted. Um, The landlady's son, Billy, 
told his mother that Zora and two other people, the janitor of the building and a woman who owned a candy store there in Harlem, had forced him to have sex with her in a basement and that they met there every Saturday for you know a certain amount of time and that she paid them money. Uh, it was just a horrible, uh, terrible time in her life and she was totally taken aback by this, uh, probably hysterical. Um, they hauled her off to jail and she spent almost an entire day there until her um, Scribner & Sons, her publisher, sent an attorney, Louis Waltman, to get her out of jail and uh, try and calm her down and assure her that her passport would certainly you know, show that she wasn't even in the country whenever this was supposed to have occurred. So fortunately, she was uh, acquitted, but not before two newspapers um, published it. One of them was the um, New York Age. And in, in, in this particular article, the reporter at least interviewed Zora and got her side of it and present a balanced uh, picture of what happened, although it was still humiliating. Um, but the, the crowning blow was when the Baltimore-based African-American printed a salacious account of a story without even interviewing Hurston or bothering to find out the facts. And when that was uh, published nationally, Hurston was almost driven to suicide. Um, she wrote to her friend Carl Van Vechten and said, you know, even though I'm innocent, my innocence is powerless against the newspapers who care only about making money, and therefore I decided to end my life. Um, fortunately, that didn't happen. After the horrific experience of fighting false charges of child molestation, Zora Neale Hurston returned to Florida in an attempt to get her life back together. She first moved to Miami, and she uh, lived on a, a boat called the Challenger. And uh, she worked on a, a political campaign, uh, a senatorial campaign with uh, George Smathers. When that ended, she was contacted by a friend, uh, Sarah Lee Creech, a Belglade resident, who had seen black children play with white dolls and was um, struck by the contrast. And when she investigated it further, she uh, spoke to one of her black friends, a black mother, who said that she couldn't find a black doll, a, a, an attractive black doll that wasn't a, a Piccaninny rag doll or Aunt Jemima kind of caricature that was insulting. Uh, and so Sarah Lee Creech decided that it was time to do something about that. She felt that was a cultural slight that needed to be corrected. So she set her mind on uh, creating a black doll that was anatomically correct, as uh, Hurston coined the phrase. And she found out that Hurston was living in Miami and contacted her and asked her to come up to Belle Glade and uh, talk to her about the doll. And she also wanted her to speak to an interracial council that had been created there. Um, so Zora came up and uh, spoke to the interracial council, which was comprised of 12 white and 12 black individuals who um, were trying to address the needs of the black and the migrant communities. And at that time, um, Creech introduced her idea for the doll and showed her pictures of the doll that she had in mind, some of the molds of the head. And, of course, Zora was thrilled with it. Hurston was very impressed with the interracial council that Sarah Creech was involved in and introduced her to prominent African-American leaders such as Charles Johnson and Mary McLeod Bethune to help Creech market her African-American doll. Sarah Creech 
was very conscientious about making sure that the doll that was to be designed represented and reflected the beauty of African-American children and their features. So she had castings completed by a, a, a renowned artist, and her name was Sheila Burlingame, and she sent copies of photographs that she had taken of Sheila Burlingame's models. And Hurston was so thrilled with them, she wrote her a letter giving her the heartfelt praise. Please allow me to say how pleased I am that you let me see pictures of the Negro dolls that you plan to put on the market. The thing that pleased me most was that you, a white girl, should have seen into our hearts so clearly and sought to meet our longing for understanding of us as we really are and not as some would have us, that you have not insulted us by a grotesque caricature of Negro children, but conceives something of real Negro beauty. Those dolls are adorable. They will surely meet a long-felt need among us. It is a magnificently constructive thing that you are doing for the whole of America as well as for Negro children. Soren Neal Hurston lived in O'Galley, Florida in 1929. It was in Brevard County that year that Hurston wrote her collection of folklore, Mules and Men, filled an entire issue of the Journal of American Folklore with her research, and worked on theatrical pieces. In 1951, Hurston returned to the same O'Galley cottage where she had been so productive before. In a letter to Florida historian Jean Parker Waterbury, Sora Neale Hurston wrote, quote, Somehow, this one spot on earth feels like home to me. I have always intended to come back here. That is why I'm doing so much to make a go of it, unquote. For the next five years, Zora Neale Hurston lived in Brevard County, working on a project that became her passion. It was a biography of Herod the Great that began as a play, but became a novel. Virginia Lynn Moylan. During the years that that Hurston lived in Ugali, um, she worked on several articles. Uh, for example, for the Saturday Evening Post, she wrote a story about... Um, Senator Taft, who was running for president during that time period, Robert Taft. And she also worked on uh, a play that she hoped would be very successful on Herod the Great, who was the ruler of Judea from 40 BCE to about 4 BCE. She was fascinated with him. Um, in fact, she thought that he was very misunderstood, that he had been unjustly um, branded as a, a murderer of babies. And she questioned, after her diligent research, she questioned whether or not that was even the case and found that it was, to her mind, folklore. And a lot of modern scholars agree with her. There really is no other historical basis for the story of Herod ordering that all male childs be murdered so that Christ could be um, you know, killed in the net. And she wanted to rectify that mistake. In 1952, while living in Brevard County, Zora Neale Hurston also covered the sensational trial of a black woman named Ruby McCollum, who murdered her white lover, Dr. Leroy Adams. The McCollum trial was a fascinating trial because it had all the elements of a best-selling novel. It had forbidden love and deep betrayal, uh, greed, political corruption, bizarre revelations, and Hurston was attracted to it for that reason. She also said that she had a genuine fascination with the dramatics of the case and the play of human emotions. Uh, Ruby McCullen was a 37-year-old mother of four who was married to Belita Sam, um, and they were the wealthiest black couple in town. 
they had made a fortune uh, running a wildly popular and profitable, although illegal, numbers game called Belita, uh, a forerunner to today's lotto. Um, the murder victim, Do Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams, was a 44-year-old husband and father, and he was the most popular doctor in Swanee County, and he was also a newly elected state legislator. So his death definitely you know, caused quite a stir in the community. Sora Neale Hurston was no stranger to controversy. In 1954, she wrote a letter published in the Orlando Sentinel that argued against the landmark Supreme Court decision in Brown versus the Board of Education, which led to the desegregation of schools. Hurston feared that the court-ordered integration would have a negative impact by destroying strong African-American schools and taking black students from caring learning environments to hostile ones. Moylan says that in many cases, Hurston's fears were correct. The students, black students, were forced into schools where there was a hostile environment, where students and administrators and teachers did not want them to be. And so not only do they face hostility, but they were steered into what we call the track system, where they went to classes with where funds were not readily available for special equipment, where the, the learning expectation was very low, whereas the white students were steered into higher classes of, you know, of higher challenge uh, with you know, funding available for all the materials that they needed. So it was, they didn't really desegregate. So their, their, um, their needs, educational needs, were definitely not being met, and this was what she was afraid would, would happen. Unable to buy the O'Galley cottage that she loved so much, in 1956, Zora Neale Hurston moved to an apartment in Cocoa Beach and then a trailer on Merritt Island. In 1957, she was fired from her job as a librarian at Patrick Air Force Base because she was too well-educated for the job. Hurston took a job at the Chronicle in Fort Pierce. Whenever Hurston moved to Fort Pierce, she had suffered um, neglect she had suffered critical neglect. She had suffered physically. Um, she was still, you know, keenly uh, upset over what had happened to her with these false charges, and she felt betrayed by her race. She was looking for a peaceful refuge where she could find love and friendship and work and employment. And she found all those things in Fort Pierce. The community uh, appreciated who she was and they did everything they could to make her life comfortable and happy. Uh, C.E. Bolin, who uh, was the editor of a newspaper there in Fort Pierce, the Fort Pierce Chronicle, gave Hurston a job writing a weekly column. She was also befriended by a physician, C.C. Um, C. Benton, who provided her a, a nice little cottage free of cost. He admired her so much that he would come by, close his medical office early, and he would come by and make sure that she had food in her refrigerator, that she had everything that she needed as far as medical care, and he would have long conversations with her. Uh, he was fascinated by her intellect and, uh, and admired her very, very deeply. And in fact, he said they would get into conversations that were so deep, sometimes she lost me. Zora Neale Hurston died in 1960. Writer Alice Walker had a marker placed on Hurston's grave that calls her a genius of the South. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by the University Press of Florida.
The cabin got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. I shove it over, hey, hey, can't you lie now? I shack a like a like a like a like a like a, can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, view historic photographs, find great books, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In 1883, one of America's great robber barons, oil and railroad magnate Henry Morrison Flagler, made a fateful trip to Florida. A newlywed Flagler took his bride to St. Augustine. His subsequent marriage to Alice Shords may have been loveless, but Flagler fell in love with the ancient city. We can make St. Augustine, he announced, the new port of the South. Bringing his railroad empire into Florida and investing many millions of dollars, Flagler did not so much create a southern new port, but reinvent St. Augustine. In one astonishing decade, he built three of the grandest hotels in Florida history, reshaping St. Augustine and recasting Florida tourism and transportation. The architectural team designed on a grand scale. Louis Tiffany stained glass decorated the interiors. Dedicated in 1888, the Spanish revival Ponce de Leon Hotel ushered in Florida's Gilded Age. Two additional hotels also dazzled Florida visitors, the Cordova and Alcazar also furnished in Spanish Renaissance motifs. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Dairy products, pure and wholesome, cottage cheese and cream and milk. Jamie Gould talks with a man who remembers working at a local dairy on the Treasure Coast. There used to be lots of locally owned dairies in our region, but they began to fade away when convenience stores came along in the 1970s. One of the best-known local dairies was Tripson's Dairy. The legendary Waldo Sexton started it in Vero Beach in 1922. A Sexton grandson, Mark Tripson, started working in the dairy when he was in high school in the 1960s. He was happy when glass bottling gave way to plastic. We were proud when we started using plastic. It made it a lot easier. And it's easier on the housewife. They didn't have to bring the bottle back. We always had a deposit on the bottles. People complained about the glass gallon being so heavy. How many bottles of milk would Trips and Dairy bottle in an average day? Oh, we'd probably put up, uh, say, 200 cases of gallons and 200 cases of half gallons. That'd be 15, 1,800. Virtually all of it then was delivered in those familiar Trips and Dairy trucks. 
little Difco trucks. They were a funky-looking little milk truck. At one point, we had 35 of them on the road. A little substation in Fort Pierce. We'd take a semi-load of milk there, and they'd distribute it from down there. What jobs did you do in the dairy, Mark? Oh, I started out bottle washer. We had a bottle washing machine. You had to load it and unload it. It was about 150 degrees, so it was always hard to get people to stand there, but me being young and dumb. This was when you were in high school, maybe? Yeah, didn't have much of a choice. Did you wear gloves? No, you didn't wear gloves. Never hire a man that wears gloves. He'll always be taking them off to smoke cigarettes. So now you were the chief bottle washer. For a long time, finally got somebody else to do that. It seemed like I always filled in when somebody was sick or vacations, so... I ended up knowing everybody's job. Did you milk the cows? Oh, yeah. Had to do that twice a day, every day. That's just two 12-hour shifts when you're milking. Because you start at what time? Three or so? You know, everybody thinks you do, but we had to uh, adjust our milking to when the semis would come pick the milk up. A lot of times we milked at 9 and 9. We'd get through about 1 in the morning or 1 in the afternoon. And there were no days off? There were no vacations? There were no holidays from milking? Cows don't know about holidays. They don't even know about daylight savings. I still don't like daylight savings because you got to adjust your clock. Well, the cows don't care. They go by the sun anyway. Is there any trick to milking a cow? Nothing I can think of. You just have to be willing to stand there. It's not hard. It's automated. It's an art to know when they're through milking. What was the most popular product? I think they're chocolate milk. It came from brown cows, right? That's how you could tell. The last couple years we had the school milk. The kids at the school could either choose whole milk, low-fat milk, or chocolate milk. I think then they had about 10,000 kids in school. We produced about 9,000 chocolate milks for them by the second week of school. It was low-fat. Somebody said, this is dietetic. But I said, yeah, but we put a half pound of sugar per gallon to make it sweet enough to so drink it. It was a tough business, wasn't it? Just physically tough. Yeah, it was a young man's sport because it was demanding. The bottling part, we did six days for a long time and then went five days. When they got refrigeration, they quit delivering on Sunday. Of course, that was before your time. Pretty much. When I was real young, uh, they had refrigeration to chill the milk down until they bottled it. But the trucks weren't refrigerated. And we had about a 10 by 12 ice maker. You'd take a snow shovel, it was snow ice, and shovel it on the milk so they could deliver it. On a hot summer day, we'd go get in the ice makers. What's your most treasured memory of the dairy business? Treasured memory? If you have one. <laughs> I miss making eggnog. We made eggnog from Thanksgiving to Christmas. For some reason, it always grabbed me to make the eggnog. We bought pails of mix that had the nutmeg and the flavoring. You just added milk and a lot of sugar and a lot of cream. I always felt the more cream, the better it tasted. The old dairy is behind Mark and Hildy Tripson's home, which is the original Sexton Homestead in Bureau Beach. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Cottage cheese and cream and milk. Our ice cream is finer, the flavor diviner, with a texture as smooth as silk. Asked about Caribbean immigration to the Sunshine State, most people think in terms of Cubans. In fact, the fastest growing group of Hispanics moving into Florida are Puerto Ricans. Bill Dudley talks to two scholars who want to make us more aware of how these new communities came to be. The question is, why do people come to a place? How do they settle there? How do they make a cultural home? And that's a story that really, really needed to be told. Trained as a folklorist, Natalie Underberg is assistant professor of digital media and director of the Digital Ethnography Lab at the University of Central Florida. 
She's part of a team working to collect oral histories from longtime members of the Puerto Rican community in Central Florida, which is emerging as a new destination for Puerto Ricans from the island as well as stateside. They're coming from New York, Chicago, Puerto Rico, California, and also it's a real cross-class migration. You have people of all walks of life who are coming here. That's UCF Visiting Assistant Professor of Anthropology Patricia Silver. People are working in service industry. People are working as doctors and lawyers and engineers, nurses and teachers. You really find all kinds. Of the nearly half a million Hispanic people in the seven-county region around Orlando, over half are of Puerto Rican descent. Most have come since the 90s, but after discovering people whose families moved to Florida as early as the 1940s, Silver and Underberg wanted to know more about those who came here before 1980. So far, they've recorded hundreds of hours of oral histories. I think it's very important to look at the dynamics, the people, the institutions, the the memories, and the history that was already here as the population began to grow so dramatically in the 90s. The goal is a multimedia project with pictures, video, and voices spotlighting Puerto Rican heritage and influence in Central Florida. But first, they say they'll have to deal with American stereotypes about Puerto Ricans in general. I think we have a lot more stereotypes about Puerto Ricans than we have real knowledge about Puerto Rican culture and Puerto Rican history. European presence on Puerto Rico began with Columbus's second voyage in 1493. Juan Ponce de Leon was the island's first colonial governor. For the next 400 years, the country was a Spanish possession until it became a territory of the U.S. in 1898 after the Spanish-American War. Puerto Ricans have been U.S. citizens since 1917. They don't need passports to enter and leave the country. After World War II, many settled in New York and other northern cities. Some first came to central Florida in the military or following ads placed by developers. And they're still coming. A 2005 article in the Orlando Sentinel listed lack of jobs and quality of life issues on the island as the main reasons to emigrate. Florida's Puerto Ricans are better educated and more white-collar than those in New York or on the island, but because of their unique political status, documenting the movements of Puerto Ricans can be difficult. When you are doing research in the international literature from the United outside the United States, you don't find Puerto Rico because they're not a country. And if you're trying to do research in statistics and so forth domestically, you don't find Puerto Rico because they're not a state. And the more that I realized that what I didn't know, I just thought it's inexcusable. So it just kind of became my life's mission to learn as much as I can and to teach as much as I can. The scholars say they've struggled with the need to educate the public about the people of Puerto Rico while telling their Florida story. How do we communicate those basic facts without, with this limited amount of time and space we have, without losing the richness uh, of this specific history in Central Florida. Silver and Underberg and their students have interviewed soldiers and service workers, migrants and professionals. They've talked to aerospace engineers, a man who brought the first Pasofino horses to the region, another who rented an Orlando water park to put on a religious festival that now draws thousands each year. And it was really something that just through his love of this tradition and his desire to see it continue, he found a way for it to happen in Central Florida. The recordings themselves will be preserved at the Orange County Regional History Center. With the help of other scholars and leaders from the Puerto Rican community, they're creating a website and a traveling exhibit where viewers can hear the voices of the people as well as see images. There's a wonderful photograph of a number of Puerto Rican engineers at NASA which is something that isn't in the history books. What's really coming to light is that the development 
of the Puerto Rican community in Central Florida has really happened along with the development of Central Florida. And I think that's a story that people are very much not aware of. And we need to look a lot at the interaction of the development of, of Central Florida as a whole and also along with that, the development of this Puerto Rican community. And they've really been here from the beginning. We can look at trends and statistics in, in large issues, but really it's, it's putting a human face on who are the Puerto Ricans in Central Florida and hopefully helping others in Central Florida learn something about this population as people and as individuals. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.